0: A number of years ago, before I arrived here in Connor, uh, I was someone who used Twitter quite a bit, and I don't know whether I was an early adopter of Twitter or not, but I I kind of liked it, and I used it. And then I very quickly had a love-hate relationship with Twitter, and I remember there was an account that emerged, and no one ever really got to the heart of who it was that lay behind This account, but there was a Twitter account, and there's lots of kind of satirical Twitter accounts, kind of joke Twitter accounts. But this was one about the Presbyterian Church, and it maybe started out like a wee bit of a joke, but it got more and more vicious and more and more critical. And a couple of us colleagues who were on Twitter, it was actually Darren McCorriston, a friend of mine, who is in and Bally Ballylachan, and Darren and I kind of got in contact with each other and we said, like, who is it that is behind this Twitter account? That's, that's really vicious and it's really horrible and it's so cynical about the church. Surely there's a better story to tell about life in PCI. And we came up with that hashtag, life in PCI, and we kind of put word out to lots of youth workers and people involved in ministry and people involved in churches to kind of begin to post about the best things that were going on and to put that hashtag life in PCI. And it gained a bit of momentum. And then this kind of vicious satirical account started to do these attacks on that hashtag and joke about it. And I remember Darren texting me one day and he said, we're in the middle of a Twitter storm. And that's a phrase that we hear people use. I've kind of walked away from Twitter because I just struggled with it in the end. But Twitter is a place of very strong opinions, isn't it? And there's been the latest big Twitter storm over the past few weeks involving Gary Lineker and some of his tweets about the government's immigration policy, and whatever you think about Gary Lineker, and wherever you stand on the issue of immigration and the government's policy, I think that all of us would agree that Twitter is a place of strong opinions. Indeed, it's a place that can be quite toxic at times. We live in a time when it seems that everyone has a strong opinion, and they want to express it, and often They want to express it in a way that will gain them the maximum hearing and the maximum audience. Well, within the church, surely nothing produces stronger opinions than the subject of worship. What happens when we gather together in this place, what we do, how we do it, the songs we sing, the instruments that we use or don't use, what I include or what I don't include. We all have our preferences and we have our ideas as to what worship should look and sound like in this place. And in all of the discussions, all of the conversations, Even in the debates about worship, here are some of the questions that I don't often hear people asking. What does God think of our worship? What does He want us to do? What is it that the Lord expects from us when we gather in this place to worship Him? And so, here's the big problem with our views and discussion on worship. It can become the case that our greatest concern is what we want rather than what God requires, that it becomes all about our preferences. And that, in turn, can then lead to a problem for those in leadership, and it can result in us getting things wrong, because it then becomes about what I describe as being the democratization of worship, that I can begin to think that the most important thing about worship in the church is finding a blend. I even use that word, and I hear other people use that word. Well, we need to get that nice blend between the the traditional and the modern. We need to get that blend between The old hymns and the Psalms and the the newer songs. And that becomes the all-important thing, so that it can become the case that my greatest concern is what people want rather than what God requires. That it can become about pleasing as many people as possible rather than pleasing the Lord. My folks surely we know that that is all wrong. How did we get ourselves in that state? And how do we begin to change the conversation about our worship of God? Well, unsurprisingly, God has a lot to say about worship in His Word. That should come as absolutely no surprise to us, because when you think about it, there is nothing more important than worship of God. After all, that is why we are here. And I'm not even talking about why we are specifically here right now in this building tonight. No, I'm talking in that more existential way. That is why we are here in this world. It is the reason why we were made by God in the first place, it's what we've been created for. And so, it stands to reason that if God has given us guidance for every other aspect of our lives, then He would make it abundantly clear how we should engage in the most important activity of all, that is the worship of Him. And so, for the next two times that we look at the book of First Timothy together, we're going to spend time here in chapter 2, if you turn with me in that chapter again. For it's a chapter that is full of instruction on how we should act when we gather together as the church to worship God. So, next time we'll look together at verses 8 to 15, which includes some much debated verses about men and women and how they are to act when gathering together in worship, but we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that one tonight. We're confining our thinking to verses 1 to 7, which teaches us, these are verses that teach us about an activity of key importance, where we gather together as God's people, and that is prayer. But really, prayer will come towards the end. We're kind of doing this passage in reverse tonight, and I'll explain why in a moment. Now, when we look at and think about this particular chapter of Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, we usually don't get past the issue of women in worship. That seems to be the big headline, the big preoccupation that people have when they read through these verses. I shouldn't have really said that because now you're going to scan through the rest of the chapter. Hold off on that, and we'll get to that in due course. Because what I want you to see is that while that might be the thing that is uppermost in many people's minds when they open up this chapter, that in actual fact, this is another chapter that talks so much about the gospel. In fact, it it contains one of the greatest statements that we have in Scripture about the gospel. And it is really important that we see that the gospel lies right at the heart of this chapter. And so, for a while tonight, this is why we're doing this in reverse, we need to take time to consider what Paul is telling us about the gospel in these verses. And a good starting point is verse 5. So, let's begin there, because this is another of Paul's brilliant summaries of the gospel. This is Paul really distilling for us telling us the essential core of the good news of Jesus Christ. And he puts it like this. Look at the verse again, verse 5. He says, "'For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all men.'" Now, that's a really wonderful verse, It is a verse that takes us right to the heart of the gospel, and therefore, it is a verse that I have often heard being used and preached on evangelistically, and rightly so. It is a great verse on which to to base an evangelistic message, absolutely. And it's a verse that we tend to see displayed outside churches and gospel halls and mission halls. We sometimes see it nailed up on trees out in the countryside. But I want you to consider with me once again tonight the context in which this particular verse appears. Because when we understand its context, in other words, when we understand the setting in which Paul makes this declaration in verse 5, it once again is a great reminder to us that the gospel is for believers. Now, this is something that we thought about as we worked our way through chapter 1, but given that it appears here in chapter 2, it is worth reiterating this point. The gospel is for believers. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's remember the background of this letter. We have said of this letter in the Bible that it is both prophetic. That is, it is God's Word to us. It was inspired by God. It was transmitted by God in the Scriptures to us. But it is also a letter that is personal. It started out as a letter from one friend to another, from Paul to his closest Christian friend and colleague, Timothy, And we get to to find out a lot about Timothy in the Scriptures. We, We get to hear about his background. We know that he had a spiritually privileged background because both his mother and his grandmother were believers, and they brought him up in the Scriptures. They brought him up in the way of the Lord. And as a result, Timothy was by the stage that Paul was writing to him, considered to be a mature believer. And he was a gospel preacher. That was his day-to-day role. And we know what Paul thought of him elsewhere in the Bible in Philippians chapter 2 verse 20. His testimony about Timothy is, I have no one else like him. And yet, I want you to see that Paul is saying this to Timothy. So, look again at verse 5. This is Paul's message to his Christian friend, Timothy. Timothy, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Well, once again tonight, recognizing this corrects a mistake that this series has already flagged up, that we can come to regard the gospel as purely being a message for others. We are believers in Christ, and the gospel is not for us. It is for unbelievers. The gospel is a tool or an instrument for converting those people to Christ, and so it is, and it has power to save. It is the means by which people will be saved. That's absolutely true, and we celebrate that and give thanks to God for that. But, folks, the gospel needs to be preached to believers. Believers need to talk to one another about the gospel because we never graduate from the gospel. For me, I need to hear it as much tonight as the day in the hour I first believed. And if I lose sight of that, if I come to, to understand the gospel in a different way, what happens is it leads to spiritual arrogance. And I've encountered this in people in the past. People whose view would be, well, Don't tell me the gospel. Hang on, I'm a Christian. Don't talk to me about Jesus and the cross because there was a time when I believed that. Just teach me how to live my life as a good Christian. That's all I need. Just equip me. Don't preach at me this gospel stuff. And yet, here in Scripture, Paul writing to Timothy, a mature believer, his closest friend in gospel ministry, is saying to him, Timothy, remember, hear this, don't forget this. Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Never forget it. And the presence of this verse in a letter to someone who would have already knowing the gospel well. is such a powerful reminder to us that the gospel is central, that Paul would reiterate the gospel time and time again because it is of central importance. In fact, the word that we should more properly use, and it is a word that in in its origin relates to the cross, is the word crucial. You think about the start of that word in crucifixion, The gospel is of crucial importance. It lies right at the heart of what we believe, the cross. So that in this passage, Paul reveals the heart of God in verse 4. Look at what he says of the Lord. He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And in this passage, Paul describes Him as God our Savior. The very presence of that phrase is another great corrective to a wrong way of thinking that sometimes exists in the minds of people, even within churches. It is God, our Savior. Never fall into that heretical way of thinking where you look at the Bible and you look at the Godhead and you think, yeah, that's right, so God, He's God the Father, He's the angry one, He's the one who who, who really is down on us, but then Jesus, He's the one, He kind of likes us more, and He's the one who would would save us. No, what did we sing this morning? Salvation belongs to our God. It, It originates with Him. It was in His mind before time itself to save us. He loves to save His people And so, look at how Paul describes Christ, the one who he sent to save us in verse 5. He says of Christ as being our mediator. Our mediator. And I once knew a guy, Joe Campbell, Presbyterian man, who was involved in mediation work at all kinds of levels and he mediated in industrial disputes the way people are doing at the current time. He mediated in in hot spots, conflict situations, parades, and places like that. Then he mediated in much more intimate situations, marriages, and families at odds with one another. And what was it that he did as a mediator? He was the one who came between the warring people, and he brought them together, so that when we hear of Jesus being described as our mediator, it could potentially cause confusion among some people. Mediating between between who? What, What is the problem here? How am I at war with God? Well, by your very nature, apart from Christ, that the Scripture tells us that we are by our very nature, objects, are our children of wrath. It's a result of the fall. It's our our nature as well as our practice. So that it's important in verse 5 to see Paul's description of, do you notice it, the man Christ Jesus. That is so important because that was what was required. Jesus had to become one of us in order to represent us to God and God to us, to be that go-between, to be that mediator through His death as the perfect man. So that while our attention will turn to the cross over these next few weeks as we approach and go through Easter, it should not be confined to one time of the year. The cross should always be before us. It should be right at the heart of who we are and what we believe in this church. How crucial it is to our relationship with God. The reconciliation that came about through Christ's death so that Paul says of Jesus in verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all men. And because the gospel is central, because it is crucial, therefore, inevitably, inevitably it informs everything we do. It impacts on every aspect of our lives as believers and on every aspect of the life of this church. So that before we, we finish by looking very, very briefly at the specifics of what Paul is teaching about prayer and worship, we note that he teaches that in the context of the gospel, with the belief that the gospel changes everything, that it impacts on our lives individually and the life of this church. So, here's the thing, people, when we talk about worship and when we actually worship here in this place, what it is that should govern our conversation and our activity is not our preferences, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's as simple and as straight as that, And with that in mind, let's finish then. And this is not half time. okay? We're we're coming towards the end. But let's finish by taking a look at what Paul says on prayer in that context of the gospel. And so, we go back to the beginning of the passage, and we see that he tells us to pray for people, to pray for everyone or all people. Look at the verse again. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, be made for everyone. Now, when you read that at first, that kind of looks pretty vague, doesn't it? And, and, and pretty non-specific. And we spend a lot of time talking about needing to be specific in our prayer. We are invited in the Scriptures to come and be very precise in what we bring before the Lord and what we ask of the Lord. And yet, here is Paul saying, well, pray for all people. Pray for everyone. Is it like those very simple prayers of childhood? Lord, please bless everyone in the world. Amen. Well, again, we, we need to understand the context in which Paul is writing this instruction. And what we have seen as we have looked at this book is that it is in the context of the gospel and gospel ministry. So, we are praying for the salvation of people across the world. That's what Paul is talking about here in verse 1. And that means that by implication, we are praying for the work of bringing the gospel to people right the way across the world. And as we apply that, that is such a challenge for us when we pray here together in Connor, especially when we pray within services of worship, because it forces me to ask questions of myself. It forces us to reflect on these questions. Do we simply pray for Connor? Are we in a prayer bubble where we just never look beyond our own congregation and its needs and its work, as important as that is? Are we insular, praying only about our own needs? Or do we pray for the people of this community that they would come to know Christ? Do we pray for gospel work that is going on beyond us, as well as the gospel work that is happening in this place. Because here's what we should conclude from what Paul is saying here in verse 1 and in the verses around it. The presence of that word all in these verses, and it, it occurs many times in these verses, that is something that should prompt us to pray big, Alistair Begg talks about praying big prayers. Not confining our prayers to just our own needs or the needs of our congregation, but praying about the bigger picture of what God is doing in this world. And given that when you look at this chapter, this is the first thing that is mentioned. And the implication in the original language is that actually these are the things of first importance to Paul. Then we need to think carefully about how we include such prayer in our times worshiping God together. But then finally, Paul, oh, I didn't put that one up, Paul tells us specifically to pray for those in authority. As he puts it in verse 2, if you look at that verse, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And if you think about when this letter would have been written, this is actually an incredible thing for Paul to say to Timothy. We think that this letter was written in around 64 A.D., and Nero was the emperor at that time. He was emperor from around 54 to 70 A.D. And Nero was a tyrant. He was a cruel, cruel man, and he persecuted the Christians when it suited his political end. He used the Christians on occasions as a scapegoat to take the the, the gaze off himself. And yet here's Paul saying to Timothy and telling Timothy to instruct those in that congregation, pray for the people at the top, pray for those in authority. Presumably, pray for the emperor, pray for Nero. And Paul in Calling Timothy to pray and his congregation to pray in this way recognizes that those in positions of authority have been placed there by God for our stability and peace. Indeed, we are to specifically pray that their actions in governing will lead to conditions that will enable not only a quiet life, but much more, if you look at the verse, will enable godliness and holiness. And I want us to think about that right at the end. What is it that Paul is calling the church to pray about? Is it to pray that people will just be nice to us as a church and really look favorably upon us all the time in our own lives and change the laws of the land to be the way we would want them to be so that those laws lead to people being godly and holy. Well, that's an amazing idea, and it's something that we would yearn for. But in the context of the passage, it's not actually what's going on here that Paul is saying that we should be praying that ultimately there would be conditions that would enable the spread of the gospel, because it is the gospel that leads to transformed lives, It's actually not the laws of this land. If we were to change the laws of this land to be more in line with Scripture, and that would be a wonderful thought, it would not actually change the hearts of people and therefore the practices of people. Only the gospel can do that. Only Jesus can change the hearts and minds of people to yearn to live in a way that is godly and holy. And so, Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, get your congregation to pray that the conditions would be right, that the conditions would be favorable for the gospel to advance. So, when we pray about our own society and it needs to be prayed for, when we pray about our government's and they need to be prayed for. When we pray about persecution that's going on across the world, it's not so much a case of, oh Lord, make our life nice and easy and comfortable, it's, Lord, change things so that the gospel can advance, so that people can hear the good news of Jesus Christ and be saved and changed, and can become the godly, holy people that You yearn us to be. The gospel should influence every area of our life, including how we worship and how we pray. And I pray that in the coming days here in Connor, we would worship God, in the way that He desires, not in the way that suits us best. And that within that worship, we would pray in line with His will and His Word for His glory and for the honor of Christ. And so, let's sing of this gospel. I love this.